We are continuing our series in the book of Colossians this morning. We've completed the first two chapters. Um, we spent a lot of time in chapter one, wrapped up chapter two last week, and now we're jumping into chapter three. And so just to, by way of reminder, um, there's, there's really two big messages in this book. Paul is writing this letter to this church in this town, and he's saying, listen, I want you to understand something. The first thing I want you to understand is that, that Jesus is king. And so he paints this huge picture of Jesus as our creator, our savior, the Lord. Like he's the one in charge, the one on the throne. But there's also a second thing that he's after in this book of Colossians. He's not just letting us know that Jesus is our king. He's asking a question. Will you make him your king? That's the beauty of God and who he is, is he gives us the ability to make a choice. We can acknowledge him and respond to him and say yes, or we can choose to say no, either I don't believe that or I'm not interested in that. We have the opportunity to choose. And so the message of Colossians is that he is the king, and then the question of Colossians is will I make him my king? And so then as we've unpacked chapters one, two, and now three, um, what we're really seeing is a picture of what happens in our lives if we decide to make Jesus king. And so in chapter one, we saw that he will work powerfully in our lives if we'll make him king. In chapter two, we saw that he will work personally in our lives. He really comes alongside of us to help us navigate through this life that we're living. And then finally here in chapter three, we're gonna to begin to look at how he works practically in our lives in a very day-to-day -day real way. And so the first part of chapter three that we're gonna tackle this morning is kind of just big picture, this life Jesus is inviting us into and how we can walk it out every day. Um, I wanna encourage you this morning, there are topics, issues, things we're gonna bring up, and there's a, there's a real opportunity when we talk about areas where people can grow to think outside of ourselves. You know, you have the like reflux of kind of like, you know, nudging your spouse a little bit when you hear the thing that's like, oh, I've kind of been hoping they would hear that one. Like there's just that urge, whether we outwardly express it or not, we tend to see things in other people where it's like, oh man, I wish they could hear that. That should change. That should grow in them. But the heartbeat of this is really, God, what do you want to say to me? What do you want to grow and shape in me? And so I want to encourage you just to come with that mentality this morning. If, if God, what do you want to say to me in this? And not so much an outwardly judgmental, what are you trying to say to other people? You know, what do other people need to hear? Um, and, then, and then the next thing I want to encourage you with is when we move forward next week and the week after, we're going to start looking at very specific relationships. How does this impact my marriage? How does this impact my relationship with my children? Or if you're a child, with your parents? How does this impact me as an employee or maybe as a boss, as an employer. Um, what does God have to say about my relationships with just the people around me, neighbors in my neighborhood, people I encounter every day? How does God talk to me about how to respond in, in the church environment? I mean, we'd, we'd love to imagine and think that stuff is healthy and good and awesome in our church relationships. I got news for you, that's, that's not always the case. That's not always the case. And so what does God say about these things? That's where we're heading over the next several weeks. So this morning, if you want to turn to Colossians chapter 3, we're going to start reading in verse 1. Um, over the course of this morning, we're going to, going to kind of work our way through the first 17 verses together. The title this morning is The Hidden Life. The Hidden Life. 
There is a life available to us in Jesus. And what we're going to lay out this morning is that there are four basic ways that we can grab hold of this hidden life. We can reckon it or acknowledge it. We can be aware of it. It's a mental and heart decision. I can reckon it. Secondly, there are things I can reject. Thirdly, there are things to be received. And then finally, I have an opportunity to respond. Reckon, reject, receive, and respond. That's where we're heading this morning. So Colossians chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, Paul writes and he says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Verse 2, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. He's got these these four verses that are just kind of like, kind of powerful, huge, big concepts, maybe even a little bit confusing. But Paul's just saying, "I, I want you to pause before we get into the details of this life God has for us. I want you to recognize what's available to you. This Jesus who came and who gave his life for us, who died on the cross for us, who rose again three days later, appeared to his disciples and to others, he's now ascended into heaven. He lives eternally. And Paul's saying, hey, that's not just something Jesus did himself, but because of that, there's a life now available to us. I now can look at an old way of living and view it as dead. Because of Jesus, old patterns, old habits, old hurts and wounds, old struggles in my life, those things, because of Jesus, I can reckon myself dead to those things. I can reckon that as as if it's an old way of living that is no longer a part of me. Secondly, not only do I recognize that some things are dead and gone, but I also recognize what's new and available. The, the message of Christianity isn't just reject a bunch of stuff that's not good for you. Maybe it's kind of fun, but you should let it go. That's not the message of Christianity. The message that Jesus brought is there are some things that are actually ripping you off. They're destroying your life. And I came to set you free of those things. And then I came to offer you new life, something richer, something fuller that you can begin to experience now. And so he says right now, actually recognize the fact that because Jesus is alive and well in heaven, that that we, our position with him is I'm alive and I'm a well today because of Jesus. And I have a future in front of me that will last forever. That's what he's talking about when he gets to verse four and he says, There is going to be something amazing that's going to happen in your life. There is going to be a moment in time, either when when you breathe your last breath here on earth or Jesus returns before you do, one of those two things is going to happen. And in that moment, you're going to actually see Jesus face to face. And you're going to be shocked to discover that not only is he glorious, you are too. You are too because of him and who who he is and what he's done in your life, because of how God has uniquely made you and shaped you as his kid, you're going to discover, whoa, I just viewed my life as difficult and trudging. And I'm one of those people that was just so much aware of my faults and failings. 
I never recognized how, how glorious I actually was, how much God had done for me in the life that was available. That's what's in front of us. And so Paul is saying right here, now, today, begin to think about these things. I, I don't know where you're at this morning. Some of you guys, this might be familiar to you. And it's just a, a decision to dwell on those things and believe them to be true. For others, this might be a brand new thought. But the first thing that Paul is saying is begin to just acknowledge in your mind and accept the reality of who Jesus is and what he's done for you. Now, this is massively important because what you see with your eyes is going to often tell you otherwise. I get up in the morning, I look in the mirror, and my first thought isn't, wow, there's, there's a person just full of glory and looking awesome today. That's not usually my first thought, right? First of all, just outwardly, I'm like, ah, oh, it's getting rougher every year. Another year's ticked by, not liking what I'm seeing there in the mirror. But even just whenever I do personal reflection, maybe it's just me. I, I can be hard on myself. And all too often, what's in my face is all the ways that I fall short. And Paul's saying, listen, Jesus has come and he has changed something in your life. Begin to reckon that. Set your mind on those things. When what you see with your eyes in this earth is telling you otherwise, it's telling you that this life is full of discouragement and disappointment and you don't measure up, Acknowledge the truth that Jesus loves you and he has forgiven you and you have a brand new life in him and that old stuff, it's dead, it's gone. Make that mental decision to believe that truth. See, the world has actually latched on to this, this concept. There's all kinds of speakers that they're not necessarily talking about Jesus, but they latch on to this idea of the power of positive thinking, how you think. Well, listen, if that's not rooted in reality, if it's just, let me just make up some imaginary things to make myself feel better, I just have to decide to believe them or not. But if I realize that it's a biblical concept, that Jesus actually has done some incredible things in my life, and that there's an incredible life available in him, and I can choose to believe that, there's power in deciding, Jesus, I'm taking you at your word. I'm taking you at your word that you love me. I'm taking you at your word that there is a life available to me in you that is different than what I've experienced before. And so I choose to believe it. And so Paul starts this whole thing. He's going to get really practical in a minute. Things that need to go and things that need to grow. He's going to talk about those in very specific ways. But first he says we have to choose to believe that it's available to us. That God wants to do something powerful. And so we need to simply Reckon our old selves dead and recognize that we've been made alive in Jesus eternally. So that's the first four verses. He continues on. Now he's going to get very specific. There's some things we need to reject. And I want you to see the terminology that he actually uses to talk about this. Colossians chapter 3, verse 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Put to death. That's pretty strong language. Then he lists some things. He's like, hey, I'm going to get specific. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked while you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. 
So first he lists some things that seem like pretty, pretty hard, pretty tough. Some things we might currently be struggling with or some things that were part of our past life. And then he goes a step further and he says, listen, there's some stuff y'all are still dealing with like wrath, anger, malice, slander, just the way you talk about people, obscene talk from your mouth. God wants to deal with all of these things. And so to, to step into this life that Jesus has for us, there's some things that we're going to have to choose to reject. So I want to I talk about this a little bit. There's, the first thing I want to say is there's a mindset. Like if we decide I'm reckoning that Jesus has something available for me, there's a mindset I step into. So in the Old Testament, there's, there's this guy, King David. And the scripture acknowledges him as being a man after God's own heart. This is the guy who slayed Goliath, who helped set Israel free from different enemies that were kind of surrounding them and attacking them and really just established a safe place for them. He was this awesome king, but he was not without his faults. And at one point later in his life, he commits adultery with some other bro's wife and then she gets pregnant. And then because he's the king, he makes sure that guy gets put at the very front of the battle line so he'll be killed in battle. King David, this guy that the Bible says is a man after God's own heart, committed adultery and murder to hide his sin. And yet, what made him a man after God's own heart was not that he didn't blow it. It was his response in the midst of blowing it. And so the prophet Nathan comes to him and confronts him about what's happened. And David acknowledges his sin. And there's this famous psalm, Psalm 51. I'm just going to share one verse from it. But Psalm 51 is the, the, the psalm that he wrote after all of this took place. And the entire theme of the psalm is this acknowledgement and repentance of what has been wrong in his life that he's done. And one of the key verses in it, he goes on to say, create in me a clean heart, O God. Now, this is actually a rare thing in our world. It's a rare thing in our world. John, John Steinbeck wrote in uh, The Winter of Our Discontent, this really famous quote, you may be familiar with it. He said, no one wants advice, only corroboration. We're looking for people to come so alongside of us and say, the way you live and what you do and the choices you make, it's all right. And the voices that contradict that, we have a hard time hearing and receiving them. God is even honest about this. He says in the scripture, the gospel is foolish to the world. They hear it and go, this doesn't make any sense. I reject that. And, and the danger of our culture that we live in right now today, it's not just about one sin here in particular or one sin there in particular. It's de so devastating. The problem in our American culture today is that instead of recognizing the difference between the person and the sin, we have more and more learned to attach sin as a part of that person's identity. And so then saying, because I'm accepting you as a person, that somehow I'm accepting sinful behaviors and lifestyles. And on the surface, it sounds right because it is God's heart to love people right where they are. It is God's heart to, heart to save every single person. The scripture says he didn't come in the world to condemn it, but to save it. 
So it sounds so right to, to accept. The problem is when we allow sin to be attached to our identity, we aren't just accepting the person. We're accepting behavior and lifestyle that's destructive. It's destructive in their own life. It's destructive in my own life. And so when Jesus uses really strong terminology, when Paul writes and he says, put it to death, why, why would you do that? Put it to death. That is strong language. It's because he actually recognizes the danger of unchecked sin in our life. It's not just that it makes God upset or unhappy. It's that it already is working to destroy. Sin itself is destructive. It's dangerous in our lives, and it's dangerous to others around us. And so Jesus is calling it like it is. He says, listen, this old way of life that you died to, you died to it for a reason, because it was killing you. Apart from me, you were lost in your sin, and you were dead in your trespasses. And I came not just to forgive you, I came to help you live differently. I came to help you live a life that is full of all that I have to offer. And so we reckon our position with Jesus, and then we reject or put to death the things in our life that have to change. And so this morning, I want to encourage you. This, this is something you could practically put into practice this week. You could go home and do it today. Get this list out right here that he's going through. And instead of thinking about all the ways that maybe this impacts our world, get real about your own life and go, okay, God, would you speak to me about this? Is there some areas in my life where I'm playing around with sexual immorality? You know, that, that word there, I don't want to get too graphic this morning, but that Greek word is actually pornea. It's, it's where we get our word porn. See, this goes beyond just um, outward specific interactions with people. This is even a condition of the heart and what we see with our eyes and what we're thinking with our mind. God is not opposed to sex. He created it. He made it. That, that's not what the whole message is about this morning. We may talk about that at some point in time. He made it. He designed it. It's meant to be good and healthy and right. But he's also defined the context that makes it life-giving and celebrated and wonderful and all that it brings that's good. He defines it in a very specific way in Scripture. And this particular word, sexual immorality, it means everything else that's outside of that. Ways of thinking. And then he goes on to define even more. Passion, evil desire. Like, those are ways of thinking. Those are ways of reacting to, to inward desires. And so I would encourage you to, to work through this stuff. That, that word covetous, that's a big one. You know, he puts it on the same level with, with some of the sexual morality that we might consider really bad. Well, he puts covetousness on the same level. You know what that word's talking about? It's talking about greed. It's talking about hoarding your wealth to yourself. It even is used in the scriptural context to talk about extortion, theft, fraud, and even just a deep love of money. And God actually says this word covetousness, it's idolatry. Like having, having money and all that it affords can be something that you worship and put in the place of God. You know, I, I think it's interesting. I just want to make this note and then we'll move on. You know, we live in a pretty polarized society. And the very people that are over on this side that are pretty angry about some sexual sins in this country that they don't agree with are also the very people that are pretty greedy 
and hoarding their money and living a very covetous life. And then some of the folks over here that tend to have a more generous heart and attitude in financial ways and helping people are saying certain things are okay that the scripture says isn't. See, this isn't about picking a political viewpoint, a political stance. Jesus is calling us to a life in him. He is an equal opportunity offender. I mean, I don't know about you. I I don't like having sin called out in my life. Like, I like to think of myself as like a pretty reasonable person. I want to do the right thing. And that all sounds great right up to the moment where my wife says, hey, you're doing this. And it's amazing how quickly this thing rises up in my heart to defend myself and to make excuses for what I'm doing. Am I the only one? Anybody else struggle with that? Yeah. It's, it doesn't feel good to have sin pointed out in your life. The beautiful thing about Jesus is he doesn't point it out to condemn us and to make us feel guilty and to shame us. He points it out to set us free. He points it out to set us free and to offer a life to us that's available in him. So we can choose to reckon our place with Jesus in our minds, and then we can choose to begin to reject things in our life that need to change. And so I'd encourage you to do that. Don't identify with your sin. It's the old man. That old man is dead and gone if you are standing in Jesus. Instead, reject that notion and recognize yourself as a new creation in Christ. All right, let's move along. There's something to be received. Colossians 3, verse 9. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. And then he lists a bunch of things that were really relevant to their day. We could make our own list. But verse 11, there's no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian or Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all in all. You know, we could make our own list of how we separate and divide people in our country and the the categories we put on them, whether it's racial or social or economical or whatever. And Jesus is saying, I come for everyone. I'm here for everyone. We all have the same need. We all have the same thing in common. There are things in our life that need to change and there's something wonderful available. And he says very specifically in verse 10, put on the new self. I can actually receive from God a new identity that he's giving me. There is a Greek word there, that Greek word put on. It's actually used in a few places in the New Testament. And one of them is found in the story of the prodigal son. Anybody familiar with the story of the prodigal son? There's this father that Jesus is is talking about and he has two sons. And one of the sons says, I'm ready for my inheritance right now. And so the the father divides up the inheritance gives the portion that belongs to the younger son to the younger son, gives the rest to the elder son. And the younger one takes his money and it says he leaves off to a far country. And he begins to waste that money and his life on just lavish, wrongful living. And at some moment he comes to himself as he's in a pig pen, literally in a pig pen, looking at their food going, that looks pretty good now because I'm broke and I've just kind of wasted everything. And he comes to himself and he decides things are better off back at my dad's house, even if I just went back as a servant. And so he decided I'm going to head back and I'm just going to make a deal with my dad. Dad, I blew it. I don't deserve anything from you. Can I just come be a servant in your house? 
And so he begins to prepare this speech in his mind and he's walking back towards his dad's house. And on that walk back, here's what happens. Luke 15, verse 20. And so he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. Now think about this for a minute. Do you see somebody that's a long way off if you aren't already looking? If somebody's coming up to my house, I'm not going to know they're there till they come knocking at the door. But if I've got somebody I'm watching for, I can't wait till they get there. You know, when you've got like a good friend on their way into town, they're going to visit. Heather visiting the, the Hawkins this weekend, right? It's like, you're excited. You can't wait for them to get there. Our kids will get so pumped when they know somebody's coming. They're like just living by the window, like watching. I think the car just pulled up. I think I just saw a shadow out there. When you're eager for somebody to come, you're watching for them. And so this father, this son who's totally rejected him, wasted all this money. He's longing for his son to come home. And so he sees him while he's far off. And it says the father saw him and felt compassion. And he ran and embraced him and kissed him. Now check this out. The son begins his prepared speech. Verse 21, the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And we know from previous verses, he was getting ready to tell him, I'll come be a servant in your house. The dad cuts him off. He stops him mid-speech and look what he says instead. Verse 22, the father said to his servants, quickly bring the best robe and put it on him. It's the same word that's used to put on this new identity that he's given us. Put it on him. Put a ring on his hand, shoes on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and he is alive again. He was lost and now he is found. And they began to celebrate. Jesus told this story to a group of people in order to teach them about God's heart towards us. When we find ourselves struggling and beat down and, and working through sins and we make the choice to say, I'm done with that. I want that to die in my life. What's available to us is not something I have to go earn or grab hold of or take for myself. It's actually something the Father is longing to clothe me with. When I turn from that stuff I've rejected and begin that walk home, I find God's already running towards me and he wants to put something on me Think about this. In their culture, for the father to put on that robe and that ring, that wasn't just like my son needs some new clothes. That was about identity. This is the father's robe. This is the father's ring. This is my kid. That father is letting the servants and everybody else in the house know, this is my son and I love him and we're good now. And so the things that he invites us to put on, it's really something he first puts on us. We just have to receive it. Okay, God, I receive what you say about me. I receive the love and the acceptance that you offer. I'll take hold of the forgiveness that you're giving me. God, it's hard for me to picture myself in this wonderful way that you're describing. So I'm going to listen to what you have to say about me instead of what my own voice says about myself. God, I want to hear your message of love towards me. And so let the Father put on that new robe of identity in your life. Well, then Paul continues on and he begins to describe the specifics of what that looks like. What are we putting on? If we're rejecting these old sins and this old way of life and seeing that put to death and we're receiving a brand new identity, what's that going to look like? Verses 12 through 14. 
put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all of these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. He's describing this beautiful life that will allow us to walk in healthy relationships. And then he says, even when you mess up, like when you blow it, because it'll be inevitable, it'll happen. Cool, then learn to forgive each other. So you can step right back into this life that is in harmony and in unison, where there's humility and meekness and love, where we're patient with each other. I don't know about you, but when I read that, I have two thoughts. My first thought is, that sounds wonderful. Like, what an awesome way to live. My second thought is immediately, that's impossible. <laughs> Am I the only one? Like, I, I'm like, I might have tastes of that. I might have moments where I experience that, but like, can life really be that way? It feels impossible. It is on our own but we're not on our own. We're not alone. This is the foundation Paul's been laying all through Colossians. We're rooted and grounded in Christ. Christ in me is the hope of glory, right? These are the things we've been talking about. Jesus is in us, and because he's in us and he's with us, the impossible becomes possible. The things that feel totally unreal, it feels like fantasy, he makes it reality in our lives. A second example in the New Testament of this same word, put on. Like, notice how Paul's used it a few times here. Put on the new self. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, this list. Above all, put on love. That same word, put on, Jesus used it as he was getting ready to return to the Father. The very thing Paul's talking about. He's in heaven now. And when he was preparing to return to the Father, he said this to his disciples in Luke 24, verse 49. And behold... I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed, that's the same word of put on, clothed with power from on high. Without God's presence in our lives, this is an impossible task. But because Jesus sent us the Holy Spirit, God's presence that comes into my life, I now have the power to do what would be impossible on my own. I can think heavenly thoughts. I can reject former ways of living. I can take hold of the new things that are available because I've reckoned, yes, because I've rejected, yes, but because I've received something. I've received God's presence in my life. That same Holy Spirit that he gave to his disciples, that same Holy Spirit is available to us today. God promises to give us the good gift of his Holy Spirit who comes and lives in our life, and he empowers us. You know, there's several letters throughout the New Testament, and they, a lot of them hit on, on this same theme. This chapter in Colossians, if, if any of you are note takers, you can jot this down and look at it later. But this same chapter, Colossians 3, Galatians chapter 5 mirrors it. It lists some, some behaviors and former ways of living that need to go, and then it lists healthy stuff that's available. Ephesians. Chapters 5 and 6 sound very similar, say a lot of the same things. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 also talks about this. And in each of those, there's like a different aspect of God's power in our life. 
First of all, every single one of those chapters all reference the Holy Spirit's presence giving us the ability to do it. Every single one of them. In Galatians, it talks about the Holy Spirit's presence and it says this list, this same list that's available right here, that it's a natural byproduct of the Holy Spirit. Have you all ever heard of the fruit of the Spirit? It's a natural byproduct of God's presence in your life to have love, joy, peace, patience. The Holy Spirit brings that. In Ephesians, he goes a step further. In Ephesians, he doesn't just list the fact the Holy Spirit comes along. He then tells us to put on some armor. And so there's this armor of God that's listed that gives us the ability to fight. Now, here's what I I want to say in regard to the armor. Have you ever had, um, maybe you as a kid or one of your kids, like they'll, they'll dress up, they'll put on clothes. Like my son has this Captain America outfit and he's got an Iron Man outfit and like he'll put them on, you know, and it's like got the kind of fake muscles that are built into the chest and like it just looks awesome. Well, when a kid just like throws on some armor like that, does that really make him a warrior? Like is my son ready to go out on the battlefield? Yes, no. Yeah, no, he's not. But when a soldier who's been trained puts on armor, now you've got something. Now you've got something. And so we receive from God his presence in our lives. And then there are things we're going to receive from him that we got to learn how to use. I begin to be trained how to use faith in my life. I begin to be trained what it means to have on the, um, the belt of truth, to have righteousness, to have a helmet of salvation. I, I begin to be trained to utilize these things. And then finally, in 1 Thessalonians 4, what's unique there is not only does does Paul write and say, put these things on, receive the Holy Spirit. But he then says, look heavenward. He says, look to the future. The thing that will help you press through is when you're not seeing it fully in your life now, know that you have a future and a hope that lasts eternally with Jesus. And so God's Holy Spirit comes and helps us do what we can't do on our own. We begin to pick up tools of the trade and learn more and more every day how to walk in love and gratitude and patience with each other. And then finally, we look ahead to the day when it will be perfect because it's not going to be while we're here in this life. We can receive it more and more, but it's not perfect till heaven. We reckon, we reject, we receive, and then finally, we respond. Colossians chapter 3, verses 15 through 17. And let, allow, the peace of Christ to rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. Be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This is a picture of, of how we can practically respond to letting Jesus be king in our life. I recognize the truth of it. I begin to reject the things that are destroying me. I begin to receive from him what he offers. And now I can take practical steps every day to respond to him. There are things described in here that we intentionally do when we gather. Do we sing when we come together? Do we do that just because we like music? I mean, that might be a part of the reason. I like music. Unfortunately, I have zero musical ability or skill in any way. I can't sing. I can't play an instrument. That doesn't stop me from trying to sing. I love music. So yeah, that's part of it. 
But there's actually something that Jesus does in us when we get together and we sing about truth, when we sing about life. There's a reason that we use songs when kids are young to help them learn concepts. There's a reason if I talked to you about the ABCs, you wouldn't just list them. You'd probably sing a song about the ABCs. That's how it sticks in our minds. We're no different. We sing these truths and they begin to take root in our heart. And so he tells us, you can do that. You can sing and get this truth down inside of you. He says you can encourage each other. He talks about teaching and admonishing. Those are two different things. And so we gather and somebody stands up and shares some things. And there's some teaching involved and some learning. But admonishing is like we take those truths and we talk to each other about them. Here's what's happening in my life. And man, we talked about this thing at church on Sunday or we talked about it in a Bible study or Jesus taught me as I was reading my Bible this week. But like, I'm not totally seeing that in my life right now. And so we encourage each other and how to walk those things out. Requires relationship. We make the decision to let Jesus be in charge. It's a daily decision. And so in word or in deed and all that we're doing, I'm responding to the fact that God is there and present and then I listen to his prompting. See, if you want to know how to reject a sin that you're struggling with, if we invite Jesus and say, okay, God, like, let's just get real for a moment, okay? I want to talk about just some application here, and then we're done. I get home, I open up the Bible, I, I look at one of those things, and the word wrath jumps out at the page to me. God, I'm struggling with anger in my life. you got to help me with this. Okay, well, let me recognize the fact that you're my God and you're my king and, and you don't make me wrathful. You don't make me angry. You say I can be at peace. You say I can have patience. And so God, I wanna reject this as destructive in my life. I wanna recognize that it's destructive not only in my own heart because I'm just filled with this like inner turmoil, but then it gets on my wife. It gets on my kids. It harms people around me. It causes me to react when I'm driving down the road at some person that cut me off. Like it's destructive. And so, God, I, I'm sorry. Will you, will you kill this in my life? And then, God, would you come with your power and help me? God, help me to be patient. Help me to walk in love. Help me to be at peace. And then daily I respond by saying, okay, God, now I actually have to go face real people. I can sit here in a private conversation with God and say I want to be at peace. Then I got to walk out and have a conversation with my wife about something we disagree on, and all of a sudden it gets really difficult. And so inviting him actually into my life in those moments and say, God, in this moment, would you remind me before that thing comes out of my mouth? God, when it has come out of my mouth, will you correct me? Help me to immediately realize that was wrong and be willing to say, babe, I'm sorry, I just blew it there. There's no excuse, I shouldn't have done that. Will you forgive me? And see, I can begin to invite him into my life in very real, tangible, practical ways by asking him to help me see something before it comes and have the strength to resist, but also asking him to help me to see after I've blown it so that I can repent and make it right and move forward in health. This is the hidden life in God that is available to us. You know, that word hidden that Paul used right at the beginning of this chapter, it makes it sound like we can't get our hands on it. And that's, that's not reality. I mean, we, we learn this as kids in games that we play, hide and seek. I don't play hide and seek because I think there's no chance I'm going to find anybody. Would I play that game? I'm just going to wander around for three hours and never find anybody. That'll be a lot of fun. 
No, what's fun is looking and exploring. And when you see like, whoa, how did you fit in the dryer? I don't even understand how you did that. Like the fun of like digging and discovering. And then it's like, yes, I found you. I got you. And then when you're the one that's hiding and you're finding a really cool hiding spot, like there's actually this fun invitation to go on a journey. And that's what Jesus is offering. It's hidden, but it's available. And if we're willing to seek him and find it, the payoff is going to be amazing in our lives. It's going to be amazing. So am I willing to live that open with him? Am I willing to live that open with God? The good news is he's loving, he's accepting, he's forgiving. The hard things he's going to highlight, it's not to reject us. It's to give us life. The good things that he's going to make available He's not stingy with the good things that he wants to give. He longs to give them to us. Will I receive it? Will I ask for it? Will I watch for it in my life? That's what's available. Reckoning ourselves dead and made alive again. Rejecting the sin that so easily entangles and destroys. Receiving power from God and then responding to his presence in our lives. That's what's available to us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your great love for us. We thank you that we are seated in heavenly places. God, remind us of that truth even when it feels so far away. God, would you help us to just be honest with you and with ourselves. And God, if there's some sin in our life that it's time to reject, it's time to put it to death. God, that we'd have the courage to get real with you about that and then to ask for your help to deal with it. God, if there's things that you're longing to hand us, God, that we would position ourselves to receive from you, that you'd put that robe on us, you'd put that ring on our finger. Jesus, that we'd be filled with the power of your presence in our lives to experience love, peace, patience, and all that you have to offer in our life and in our relationships. And then finally, Jesus, I pray that we'd be aware of the fact that you're with us every day and that we can hear you, we can respond to you, and we can walk in real relationship with you. Jesus, would you teach us more and more about the fact that there is a hidden life in you that we have access to? God, I pray that we'd have the courage to go on that journey, to seek you and to find you. It's in Jesus' name we pray this morning. Amen.